KMTT Ki Mitzion Tetzay Torah. Today is Wednesday. We're getting closer and closer to Pesach. And uh, today's shiur will be given by Harav Mordechai Friedman. This was a shiur he gave in Yeshiva to a group of uh, Talmidim. There's some questions in the middle, questions and answers on different topics. Halacha Lamaisa. Before Pesach, Mechirat uh, Chametz, Shin Matzah, and Bdikat Chametz. You will hear in the middle there actually are questions, Q and A, and Harav uh, Friedman's responses. This was a shir that was given mamash psak halacha, and I think we can all uh, enjoy sharing in the shiur. Harav Friedman. There are a number of topics I would like to try to cover before Pesach. The first is uh, about mechirat chametz, the sale of chametz. Okay. This ingenious Jewish invention, okay, was invented uh, quite a quite a while ago. You heard about the guy that heard that it was that it was uh, usher to to smoke. He went and went and sold his lungs to a goy. <laughs> right. In any case, mechir um, chametz was an ingenious invention. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's mentioned in the Gemara, but not as a type of a loophole, but rather one of the type of one of the things a person can do to get rid of chametz. What we talk about the sale of chametz, mechir chametz, nowadays is very much a type of a loophole, okay? Or in 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 the Gemara's language, a harama, a type of a trick, because uh, the idea is that a person has a certain amount of chametz, so for whatever reason, can't get rid of before Pesach and goes ahead and sells it to a non-Jew the non-Jew owns it and the halacha is that when the non-Jew owns it so it's not your chametz and you're not over on the Isser of Bal Yiro'eh, Bal Yimotzeh. now this came into practice quite a while ago Okay, uh, it's mentioned in a number of tshuvot uh, one of the uh, prominent achronim that, uh, that really was a supporter or practiced it was the Bach and as the Bach describes it, what he did was institute this type of sale. It was instituted for businessmen or merchants who had huge amounts of, be it, I don't know, grain or, or beer or whiskey, that, and they, they traded in, in that, or they, let's say, owned inns. A lot of Jews in those days were like hotel owners, even in those days, right? Um, and they owned inns that had a, a certain supply of beer or whiskey, that it wasn't practical, practical for them uh, to consume before Pesach or to sell out before Pesach in a real way. And they had this Mishirat Chametz to the Goy. And, and the way it worked was that not only was the Chametz sold to the Goy, but the premise, the place, the room or the storage uh, hut that the Chametz was in was also sold to the Goy. In other words, the land was sold to the Goy. So the Goy would own the entire structure with the Chametz in it and they would also do something called the Mesirat Mafteach, where they would give the actual key to that storage room to the guy. So that the guy becomes not only the owner of the chametz, but the person who possesses and controls the chametz over Pesach. And it was with an understanding that after Pesach, the guy would then sell the chametz back uh, to, to the Jew. Now, there were quite a few poskim that were very much against this idea for a number of reasons. And I'm not going to go into all of them, I'll just mention a few. The first was the basic concept of harama. 
harama, you know, it's when you know that in reality it's going to be your chametz after Pesach, and the whole thing is a type of a trick. Um, one, there are there are views that on a harama, when you're talking about an, a a din diraita, should not be done, and according to some, not only should not be done, is not even effective. Okay, so that was one claim against it. In other words, that the whole thing is a type of uh, fiction, a halachic fiction, and therefore it shouldn't be acceptable. Yes, question. So how would they get rid of this? They no, I'm just telling those people who were, there were some people who were against it. I give you an example of, of the Bach who, who practiced it. I'm just saying there were Rabbanim that felt it was wrong and shouldn't be done at all. <coughs> they would consume, they would eat all this stuff or burn the rest of the whatever wasn't. What does the Torah say? Tashbitu. Destroy the chametz or, or get rid of it, get it out of your, your rishut. They wouldn't sell it to a guy. Yes, Rami. Uh, on a basis, how is it a real sale if there's... Wait, wait, so let, me, let, me get, let me touch on all these issues, and if you have any questions, I'll, I'll, we'll get to it. Okay? So that was one. Number one, we said it was a harama. Another issue was an in, in issue of whether the sale was belief shalim. Belief shalim meaning, does the Jew believe that he's actually legally f- selling his chametz? Does the guy really believe that he's actually purchasing the chametz. Okay? In other words, in order for there to be a, a, a real sale, a real kinyan, there has to be something called like gemira dat. Gemira dat is a full realization of a change in legal status. And that would be another problem that exists with these sales. Okay? Uh, <coughs> if either the guy or the Jew don't, don't really believe in the sale because they just think it's all a bunch of mumbo-jumbo or or just a bunch of fake eye just to alleviate this isser, and they don't really believe in it, right? So what does it help? Uh, another issue is that in those days, as I mentioned, the makom was sold, and, and nowadays, I think most, most rabbinim that do the sale, it also says that the makom, the place, is sold. But also in those days, it was, it was done in such a way that the entire storage uh, hut or an entire closet with a lock on it and the key would be given to the guy, so that the guy, A, had full control, but not only full control, but complete access. In other words, in, in our homes, if we would sell, I don't know, you know, our fathers would sell their whiskey, if we get a knock at the door, you know, one evening in the middle of Pesach, some uh, non-Jew is coming to collect his chametz, you know, how many people give him free access at any time he wants to come take his booze and, and, and you know, and, and just leave? So that's another practical or halachic issue with uh, a sale nowadays. Yes? So the problem if you sell it, but the room has to leave it in it's like the room that you have to walk through to get your house. You could sell the makom and not the room. There's some people that will sell uh, like a shelf, not necessarily the whole room. Okay? But I'm doing, what I'm raising the issue is access. In other words, does the guy really have you know, true and full access? Okay? These are some of the major issues. I have to add a fourth point, that when the Bach and people like the Bach instituted the Takana, they instituted it for people that had no option whatsoever, and they basically couldn't carry on a normal business, their livelihood, without using this Hetem Chirat Chametz. Okay? We're not talking about your average yeshiva guy who has some, I don't know, Marmite, or has some, I don't know, oatmeal, or something like that, that he has you know, stored up or a bag of pretzels or cookies or, or what have you. We're not talking about that. 
we're talking about you know a, a, sincere, a, a serious percentage of a person's uh, <coughs> of a person's wealth was you know in, in chametz. I mean, we're not even talking in, in your cases of Bnei Yeshiva. You're not talking like some of your fathers might have. I don't know, a, a collection of whiskey could be worth $500, $1,000, sometimes even more, right? Um, what I personally would advise you that uh, not to have such huge uh, collections of whiskey when you get older, so you don't have a need to go out and sell it, or to religiously finish your whiskey before Pesach, so you don't, get, so you don't have the need to, to, to sell the whiskey. Um, but as B'nai Yeshiva, where you know the amount of chametz you have in your room can't, can't be more than fifty dollars, or, or maybe even twenty dollars, okay, it just can't be. So it really doesn't make sense to get into mechiret chametz. Now, what mechiret chametz should be used for, or is used for, is in situations when a person has a suffix. He's not sure. I don't remember, did I speak last time about, uh, I did, I spoke about alcohols and aftershaves and, and whatnot, etc. And I mentioned the fact that probably 90% of, uh, of the industrial alcohol that's used in these various cosmetics, and even in toothpaste, etc., is not necessarily from, from, from a grain source. So sometimes you could look up on a list and you could you know, determine where the alcohol is from, but most of the time it's difficult to really determine. And you can't determine... So in those situations where you're talking about, according to many post there's you know, no need to sell it even. And then on top of that, there's a suffix, whether it bechlal is chametz, etc., etc., etc. So in those situations, to do a mechira, to kind of cover yourself, you know, just in case, that I can understand, that makes a lot of sense, and I personally do that. You know, as I sell things when I know that I'm not selling chametz gamur. But chametz gamur, let me give you a number of examples of, of what chametz gamur is. Chametz gamur obviously is bread. It's, it's macaroni. Okay? It's probably oatmeal as well, because oatmeal is, is steamed or, or, or parboiled to a certain extent. Okay? Uh, probably oatmeal. Uh, whiskey, beer, and, and, and these type of things, that's chametz gamur. In my opinion, in, in the situations that you're in now, I don't think that you should be selling it. I don't think you should be getting into it. I don't think you need to preach to your fathers to be holier than the rabbi from the places you come from, and, and, and he, he, you know, institutes this sale. He, he facilitates this sale. That's not your business to be machmir to, to, to your fathers. But I'm saying for yourselves, this is that's the direction I would advise. Yes. Um, if you if you if you your partner is not Jewish and you um, drink chametz, you have to work that you're a doctor or something like that. And you come to work in his comments. You mean people eating like bread and things like that? Yeah, like the kitchen in the, in the it's not a problem if you don't own it. If you own it, in other words, if you, you, your business f- feeds the workers with food, then you can't be chametz. You cannot feed the workers with food. Wait, with chametz. Hmm? If you're a partner, then you have to somehow work out with your local rabbi a way of selling that, you know, that section. I think a much better thing is to make it kosher Pesach, even though they're talking about non-Jews and etc. You know, if you serve them food, not to serve any chametz on, on Pesach, but if that can't be done, to work out something, you know, some kind of a sale where your father is not the owner of the business on, on that respect. Yeah. And, and if you and if you deal with chametz, um, like, like a dentist, he deals with chametz in daily life. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know whether they actually do. In other words, I'm not sure that the alcohol that they use is chametz. 
that's you know there's a very specific shilas that that the doctor would have to to ask the rabbi, you know this issue that issue etc. And, and it's very possible that it isn't chametz. Yeah. Bottles. bottles. I would just rinse rinse them out and, and make sure not to use the bottles on Pesach. Sure. Um, a new topic I'd like to talk about is matzah. Okay, big question. Machine matzah versus hand matzah. Okay, how many of you use hand matzahs on Pesach night? How many of you use, use machine matzahs on Pesach night? Okay. Um, let's tell you a little bit of history. Obviously, by Yitzhak Mitzrayim, they didn't use machine matzahs. We could safely assume that they didn't use machine matzahs in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Um, I saw somewhere that it was, it was first started in France. Uh, the safest that was Tov Kuf Tzadi Chet. You could do the math and figure it out. Okay. There's a question also is like, what exactly defines machine matzahs? The first machine matzahs might have been almost like this type, like of, like a crank. Has anybody ever seen like a, a pasta wheel? Like you feed in the, you know, you feed in and, and, and you turn it and it, it flattens it out, etc. So, you know, to define exactly what the machine was back in France when they first used it, I didn't, I didn't see. I didn't see any pictures of it, so I can't tell you. Uh, there are many communities that used all kinds of mechanisms. Um, they would, let's say, some places would, would make um, hand matzahs, and then they would have like all kinds of interesting rollers to make the holes. And some wouldn't even want to use the rollers to make the holes because they were w- worried about all kinds of shashot that that maybe some of the dough will get stuck into the cracks of these uh, you know machines, and they wanted to stay away for stay away for, from completely. Anyway, it was an incredibly incredibly big machloket in Europe when it first started to, to become more popular when it was first invented, between major, major poskim, some that were dead set against, like Rabbi Chaim Nisans, was held that machine matzahs is chametz gomor. Okay? Um, and there's incredible literature to read about it, because there are all kinds of chuvas for and against, etc. I'm not going to get into this, uh, give you specific names. I'm just going to point out what, the, what some of the issues were. The biggest issue, I think, would be cleaning out the machinery. As you all know, after 18 minutes, it becomes chametz. So if you have movable um, metal parts, you'll have cracks in those metal parts, sometimes thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of cracks in those metal parts. And they somehow have to be cleaned out well. Because if you don't clean them out well, right, you have the possibility of a, of a small crumb, a certain amount, sticking there for more than 18 minutes, and then becoming reintroduced or remixed into the batter, into the dough, of the uh, of the matzah making the matzah chametz, so the cracks were a very very big issue. Um, the svara four was the fact that metal is basically very very smooth, and you know for generations, people using roller pins that are made out of wood, which is not all that smooth. Although what they used to do is um, quite often would be sand down the, the the roller pins, rolling pins in between, etc. But that was one issue. Another major issue when it comes to machine matzahs was the issue of lishma. The halacha is, and this is l'chol the halacha is that matzah mitzvah, matzah that you're going to use for a mitzvah for leil pesach, to eat your kazais of matzah, has to be, has to be um, kneaded, and it has to be baked lishma. Okay? Lishma meaning l'shem matzah mitzvah. I'm now, you know, kneading, I'm now baking, 
this matzah for using for matzah's mitzvah. That's the concept of lishma. Everybody holds that. The big question was, when you press a button on a, on a machine, and then that machine, no matter what, whether it's using electric power or steam power, starts moving because you, you know, pull the lever or you press the button, and then the matzah is getting kneaded or even baked mechanically, automatically, does that have a din of lishma or doesn't have a din lishma? Okay? And this is not just a question of cleaning, cleaning the cracks, but it's really a halachic issue. When a human being presses that button and he does it, I'm now pressing this button, l'shem matzah's mitzvah, does that have a halachic status of lishma or not? Okay? Also a very, very big, it's an interesting, very interesting sugya. It was a very, very big machloket, where some poskim felt it wasn't, and other poskim felt, since the Jew starts the, the process, presses the button lishma, that's, uh, that's enough. Okay? Another issue that was brought up by some of the chuvot was that you can't have a, a good supervision uh, over a machine. You just can't watch the entire process the whole time through. And as a result, later on, there's a conveyor belt in the certain places where it gets covered by the machine. You just can't see the dough and, and the whole process. And because of that, there's a problem of, of hashkacha, okay, of supervision, and therefore some people brought that up as a claim against the validity of, of machine matzahs. There was also a practical level. There was some post that wrote, you know, these machines are going to take over the world, and they're going to basically put people out of work, good Jewish people and Jewish women that earn a living because they roll, they roll you know, the matzahs by hand and do all these things by hand. The machines are going to take over, and there were some posts that said just for that reason alone that it wouldn't be valid. Um, on the other hand, those who were for would counter and saying, yes, you're worrying about the workforce, but why not worry about the price of matzah? Okay? As you all know, you know, hand matzah could, I don't know, cost three or four times more than machine matzahs. And not everybody is very rich. You know, sometimes you have people who have large families and they need to consume a lot of matzah. And it's a very, very, very expensive endeavor, right? So that's a very, very big issue. Add to that, there are people that, let's say, sometimes have the money, but uh, they're on the fringe of religiosity, and as a, as a result, if, if matzah costs too much money, then they just won't do it. They just won't, you know, they won't do the mitzvah even. So that was, that was a big uh, claim as well. There was even one uh, posse, or maybe even a number, that said, said the concept, Chodosh Asu Torah. Chodosh Asu Torah, it's a pun. Chodosh Asu Torah. Chodosh is, is a different issue that maybe one day we'll talk about, right? Halach of Chodosh, of, of not, eat, not consuming um, the flour or the, the, the wheat or barley before we uh, bring the Kavana Omer. That is a borrowed phrase, but basically it was a phrase used that anything new, any innovation is also Minatara, meaning they didn't want to see any innovation. It's not the way Moshe Rabbeinu did it when he went out of Mitzrayim. It's not the way, you know, my father did it, my grandfather. I'm not going to use any machines. Um, another interesting claim was, I mean, this is Mashma really, uh, in summary, shown him, that the kneading of the dough itself slows down, retards the fermentation of the, uh, of the dough. Okay, when you, you, when you, with your hand, you knead the dough and you work the dough, it slows down the fermentation, and as a result, so some posts can want to say that when it, all this is being done by machine, we don't know that the formula is still 18 minutes. 
Okay, it could be that the fermentation is faster with a machine. We have a Mesora from Chazal, that chimutz, that fermentation when it comes to bread and water, happens in 18 minutes. And the truth is that there's other ingredients involved in it. As an example, uh, temperature is probably a very, very important thing. Was the yeast, they start reproducing and partying at a particular tem- temperature. If it's too hot, it kills them. And if it's too cold, it makes them lazy. Okay? But at certain temperatures, they'll, re- they'll, they'll reproduce faster. And as a result, fermentation is affected by that. So Postum said, how do we know with these machines, you know, that it's parallel, the rate of fermentation is parallel to what Chazal said, how do we know that it's, it's really 18 minutes? Okay. Um, and, and related to that, they, another claim was that as the conveyor belt takes the matzah slowly to the oven, to the oven door, there's a certain amount of heat that's radiated from that oven onto the conveyor belt before the matzahs get into the oven. So that the dough starts to get heated up before it reaches the baking temperature. And that also will um, cause a, 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 a speedier fermentation. And they, and they basically said you can't rely on 18 minutes. These were the various claims. Um, then they also had something like that it's more chaviv to work it with your hands, it's a mitzvah, it's nicer. Other ones said there were all kinds of sodot and ideas by the fact that matzahs are round, okay? And therefore they had this like a masora, a matzah has to be round. Uh, there were those that claimed that as well. In any case, um, bottom line, the people who, the more, the, the more modern day poskim, they came out and said that you should not use machine matzahs, are people like the Chazonish, uh, Rav Shlomo Kluger, the Rogachavar, the Imre Bina, they felt that one should not use machine matzahs. Um, there are people that could count it today and say, yes, but some of these, you know, some of the considerations of these, of these poskim are no longer applicable today because the machinery is so much more advanced than it was then. And that might, might be true of some of the claims, and definitely not of all the claims. Now there's, as an example, if you're talking about cleaning, could be that nowadays we have cleaning abilities you know, that, that they didn't have 100 years ago when they started with machine matzahs or, or whatever. Uh, not could be. I, I mean, I know for a fact that we do. Right? Um, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, the issue of lishma is not solved today. In other words, if pressing a button 100 years ago wasn't lishma, then today it won't be lishma as well. Um, those people today who are Mati, Rav Shlom Zaman, Orbach Zatzal felt that, that machine matzahs are, are roi for matzahs mitzvah uh, Rav Mashash also who is uh, the Rav Rashi of Yushalayim, Swari Rav Rashi of Yushalayim felt it's fine uh, Rav Vad Yosef and Rav Mordechai Eliyahu who are, are great posting today feel that it's, it's okay but they prefer that people use hand matzahs um, I can tell you I personally follow my Rebbe uh, Rav Luchensin, from what I understand, uses machine matzahs for, for the Seder. Uh, there's another consideration. The other consideration is the shita of the Rambam and the Rif. According to most Rishonim, the way they understood the Gemara, the concept of Shmira, right? Shmura matzah. What does Shmura matzah mean? Shmura matzah means that the matzah is watched or supervised okay, from a certain point until they actually, it's actually baked. That's shmura matzah. Um, the other concept of lishma, that we have intent when we bake it, is a different idea. And see, interestingly enough, 
the Rambam doesn't even mention anything about the intent, the kavana, to, to do it lishma. The Rambam doesn't mention the concept of lishma. The Rambam mentions only one thing, not shmura, that it has to be supervised. Now there's a machlok at poskim, whether it has to be supervised mishat ktsira, from the time it's cut off the ground, or does it have to be from the time that it's milled, or does it have to be from the time that it's introduced to water, meaning when, when we make the, the dough. That's a machloket. Nowadays, uh, everybody's knowing to be machmi and mishat ktsira for shmura matzis, that it's, that it's that supervised from the time it's, it's cut, harvested from, from the fields, and onwards. Okay? Now the Rambam holds that the din of shmura matzah is not a din in matzah mitzvah. The Rambam in the Rif. Okay? That it's not a din in matzah mitzvah, it's a din in matzah, period. What I mean to say is that according to the Rif and the Rambam, the only matzah that a person is allowed to consume on Pesach, all Pesach long, not just the first night, all Pesach, is matzah that has been watched from the time of Ketzira. If it hasn't been supervised from Meshat Ketzira, according to the Rambam, it's a chisaron, it's lacking in the din of chimutz, that it might be chametz. And according to the Rambam, you're not allowed to consume that matzah. So according to the Rambam, the only matzah you're allowed to consume on Pesach is shmura matzah. Okay, and, and the Aruch HaShulchan brings down that day and says, if a person wants to be Yotzi, the Rif and the Rambam, that's the type of matzah you have to consume, you have to eat all Pesach long. And there are people that won't eat, won't allow even regular matzahs into their house, or, they, or, or some of them will allow into their house, they just won't eat regular matzahs. They'll only eat Shmura matzah the entire time. Okay? Yes, yes, yes. Mashkichim the whole time. If someone's mashkiach the whole time. Okay? So, again, you know, there's a concept of, according to most Rishonim, that this Shmura Matzah means it's number one supervised, and number two, it's, it's Baked Lishma, and that's specifically for the Matzah's Mitzvah that you eat on the first, and if you're in Gaul, it's the second night, right? Um, according to the Rambam and the Rif, it's a din for, for, for all of Pesach. Yes? Um, wouldn't the problem of machines not being cleaned be solved by the position? Yes, uh, that's a very good point. The, those that are, that are make you feel that even if a small amount would fall into a crack, you could rely on Bittu Bashishim before Pesach. I'm sorry I didn't make that clear. Yes, that's a very important point. Uh, also, on the other hand, are there Well, I tell you, let, let me just repeat what you just said. It's, it's a valid point. You know, there, there are those that feel that machine matzahs are more efficient and therefore less of a chance of chimutz. Mashankin, if you if your person's needing on their own, he's a human being, he could uh, fail more than a machine can. The answer to that is yes, but then you're insinuating that all the generations from Yitzhak Mitzrayim until whatever, a hundred years ago or something, you know, they were eating comets. But uh, I personally, uh, I, I, emotionally, I agree with you. I don't know if halakhically I would say it's also to eat, you know, hand matzahs. Uh, but emotionally, I feel comfortable not having hand matzahs. Someone asks me, oh, I'm coming to your house for Pesach, can I bring, bring you hand matzahs? I'd rather not have any hand matzahs. Because I'm already going with machine matzahs, so I just go with machine matzahs. But obviously you can't come to... It, it's a very, very high presumption to just assume that hand, you know, hand matzahs are problematic. Okay? And on top of it all, generally speaking, they're tastier, machine matzahs. And usually they're easier to chew. Then some hand matzahs vary from like you know nice crisp ones to like if you feel like you're eating a, an old LP record, 
Yeah. Any other questions? Uh, I think that's more or less it. Was there something else I wanted to mention? Which, oh, I'm sorry. We, I, I told you I would, we'd speak about Bidika. Has anybody spoke to you about Bidika Chametz yet? We have very, very little time. I'm going to try to very, very quickly go through the, the issues of, of, of Bidika. Uh, the, the time of Bidika, as you all know, is Orla Arbasar, meaning the night before Erev Pesach. That's the ultimate time. For Bnei Yeshiva, if you're not going to be, you have responsibility, by the way, for your rooms, to clean them, and to make sure that there's no chametz in them. For Bnei Yeshiva, people that are not going to be around at that time, they're just not going to be around, then you're allowed to do a bedika the night, the night, the last night that you're going to be available. Now, if you're going to be in Yerushalayim, then in my opinion, you should be getting on a bus, coming back to Yeshiva for the night before, and doing a bedika then that's the proper thing to do. If you can't, if, if the program doesn't allow you, it just doesn't fit in, etc., you really, really can't, and again, I would tell you, do a badika the night before you leave, okay? What you would have to do is, step one, clean your room. Step two, straighten out your room. And only after that, step three, to do a badika. You would not make any brachot if you don't, if the badika is not taking place at the, at the, at the uh, original time, meaning the night before uh, Erev Pesach. Okay? Now, um, as you all know, Botkim or Haner, you usually use a candle, and the reason why you shut the lights and use a candle is kind of like to focus uh, into a corner. There are those day out, there are some opinion that hold Botkim or Haner basically means that you have to have the, the, the room illuminated, and there are some that believe that turn on the lights in the room, because it's just adding more light. And definitely easier to find things when you have, you know, a nice bright room. There are people that hold that as well, and it, it makes sense. I'm personally of the more traditional type, so I shut the lights when I start to search the room, meaning it helps me focus. Now I'm looking in this corner, and I'm looking in that corner uh, to focus what I'm doing. Now, in my opinion, it's far more efficient and safer, okay, to use a flashlight or an electric torch, depending on which country you're coming from. Right, um, but again, since I'm a traditionalist and I was brought up in a home where candles were used, so what I do is I start the bracha with a candle. You know, do a bedika for start off my bedika for a couple of minutes with a candle, and then I dump the candle and I go with a flashlight, um, going from room to room. Okay, just a moment. What are we looking for? Very, very important. You should realize that the, the reason why we do a bedika chametz even though we are, do bitul, there's a concept of bitul, bitul meaning you say, I now, um, right, the kol chamir chamir, you're saying, I now disown, nevatel all chametz that, that's in my reshut, even if there's chametz, it's, it's like, like offered to me, it's like dust of the earth, it's no longer mine, it's gone. Okay, you make that proclamation, it's very, very important. By making that proclamation, you now no longer halachically own that chametz. So you can't be over on the Isra of Bali Rabbi Matzeh, which is only applies when you're the owner of that chametz. So the Rishonim asks, right, why, why is, there, is there a concept of habodek tzarech levatel, why do you have to do both? In other words, why, if, you, if you're a bodek, why do you have to do bitl? If you did bitl, why do you have to be bodek? One, one should cover everything. Right? So Tosos, in the beginning of Psachim, mentions that we're being extra careful, chazal, we're being extra careful 
because chametz is the type of thing we eat all year round, and it's easy just to forget ourselves and just pop a you know a pretzel or a cookie into our mouth, as opposed to I don't know like something like pig, you know we don't pop into our mouths and therefore we don't have to be so choshesh. <coughs> That's what Tosus explains. Um, Rashi explains, um, or Ron explains a little bit different that the chashash was that maybe you wouldn't do bitul belayf shalim. In other words, sometimes a person says, it's like offer, it's like dirt, you know, I don't want it. And all of a sudden you see, see this beautiful glazed donut sitting right there. Okay? And, you know, and it's just hard. How you mavatal? How do you look at a beautiful glazed donut like dirt? Right? And so the Ran says, Yechoshesh, maybe the person wouldn't do bitul belayf shalim, or maybe even a person might even forget. So Chazal were, were instituted bedika as well. Okay? Either way, you go like the Ran's explanation, or the Tosa's explanation, Either way, when you're doing a bedikah, you're not looking for those teeny tiny pretzel crumbs, okay, that even a yeshiva guy wouldn't eat. Right? That's not what you're looking for. So to realize that when you bend down and you look underneath <coughs> your bed with a flashlight, you don't have to go with a flashlight and a magnifying glass looking for little crumbs. That's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for little crumbs. You're looking for a whole cookie. You're looking for a... a a bottle of whiskey, of course you wouldn't find underneath your beds a bottle of whiskey, but I'm saying you know, you're looking for something that is either chashuv to a person or the type of thing that a person might pop into his mouth okay, if you find a quarter of a pretzel and, and people wouldn't eat a quarter, well most people wouldn't eat a quarter of a pretzel that's not really what you're doing for bedikah for and that's not what you have to look for okay, this streamlines bedikah, it should therefore make things a little bit faster, on the other hand you really have to look carefully, you have to look Every place that you could have possibly, you know, normally brought chametz in. If you live in a house where your mom says zero food in the rooms, and not only that, but you live in a house that people actually listen to their mothers <laughs> and don't bring any any food into the rooms, and in a house where there are no little kids, because a little kid, very much like weasels, bring chametz all over the place, right? <laughs> But if you live in a house that there aren't any little kids and people listening to their mothers and etc., and your bedroom therefore is a no, you know, no food zone, then the truth is you normally w- wouldn't have to ever do any badik in your bedroom. Assuming again you're not the type that puts a glazed donut in their pockets or anything like that and might forget and you know bring it. In. If, you, if you don't put food in your pocket, and there's there's no issue, right? And that's a, that's a mokum she'ein machnisim b'chametz, and therefore it doesn't need the badika. Okay, but but if again, when the little kids, anything's possible. Little kids, you, you have to look. Uh, one place that people sometimes overlook are the cars. A lot of times, you know, people spend hours in their homes and they don't check the cars. At the cars, that that's a place to look. You know, you can find all kinds of things underneath the seat in the glove compartment, um, etc. Just a moment. There is a, 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 a. It's fine, by the way, one person to make the bracha, and other people that plan on helping that person, and and anybody can help the person. Hear the bracha, answer amen, and they could spread out and and, and, and each one check in their own rooms. That's that's one hundred percent fine. Um, there's an interesting minhag. It says in the, the Mordechai and also in the Sefer Pardes that 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 the Mordechai was not uh, didn't make the bracha until he found chametz. And then he made the bracha al bir chametz. Okay, that's only that's the shita of Mordechai, and because of that, there's a minog, minog Ashkenaz, maybe not, maybe not just minog Ashkenaz, to actually put out 
little pieces of chametz or packages of chametz. Some people makbid on ten, um, in order to make sure that you find, in order to validate the bracha, so to speak. The truth is that most we shown him, and the Shulchan Aruch also passing like this, say the bracha is not about finding; it's about seeking. I'll, even it says I'll be your chametz, but it's on on the fact that you're seeking out the chametz, and therefore there's no need to put out these little packages. Uh, the gra. Vilmagon felt strongly a person shouldn't do this because he's also heightening the possibility that one of those packages will be lost or forgotten. And you're causing yourself more problems. Right? The Mishnah says there's no chiv to do it, but if you have such a minig and you really, really want to do it, you know, vakasha, that's why you leave the number 10, so you can always know to find 10. But when you only find 9, that's when the trouble really uh, starts. You have to be careful about that. Uh, yeah, any questions? Yes? Uh, someone told me when you're checking the chumas, you got to check in like the hems of your Shabbos pants in case you're eating. But if you were no, it, you do not have to check the hems of your Shabbos pants. Yeah. What you might, what some people do, and there's validity to that, is to look through svarim if those are svarim that they would eat at the uh, that they would use at the table, because then there is there is a possibility that crumb will fall into the food on the table. We say you don't have to look for a crumb. You wouldn't eat it. No, I said well, only there's not a not a possibility of eating it or of something that's really good that you you wouldn't make a good bittel. But in Svarim, if, if you bring Svarim to the Pesach table, there, that, that's an issue. So the solution there is either to leave through all your Svarim, which is very, very hard if you have a lot of Svarim, or be makbid, not, you know, never to eat over a Sefer, and therefore it's not a makam shamachni simba chametz, and you don't have to do a bedika. Or B, never bring a Sefer to the, to, to the table on Pesach. Yeah. Um, why are we so pedantic for Pesach to check the I like that word, that's a good word. Yeah. Why are we so pedantic to check the everything from our underlying carpet from this and that? Because Klai Yisrael have a minute of going insane before Pesach. It's, it's, it's your mother's minute, your grandmother's minute, your grandmother's grandmother's minute. That's why. No, really. P- people really, really go. It achieves Yerushalayim. But halachically, you don't, you know. If, if it's a chashash that you're going to eat it, or a chashash that you're going to have remorse on, the, on your, on your, on your bittel, on your verbal bittel, then you, that's what you have to be bolded for. You've been listening to Abmonachai Friedman, Shul in Halacha Lemaisen, getting ready for Pesach. Tomorrow's Shul will be given by Harav Yakim Kambayim. And we'll deal with Kazayit Maro. How much Maro does one have to eat in order to be a Yotze, the mitzvah of eating Maro on Pesach? Till then, Koltuv, this was KMTT, Kimitzion, Tetzay Torah, Udvar Hashem, Yerushalayim.